Genesis chapter 1, our text this morning is found in verses 20 through 23. Today we are looking at the fifth day of creation. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly, after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, how thankful we are that you are an awesome creator. and a great designer of all that is made. And even though we, Lord, as humans, are tainted, Lord God, with the sin of Adam, and have been since that fall in the garden, nonetheless, Lord, in coming to Christ, And in coming to the richness of the fullness of Christ, in his salvation, in his sanctification, in his security and in his strength, we are blessed to see, Lord God, that not only what you intended from the beginning will will one day again be the order of your business, But until that day, we can truly stand upon your truth, which we are studying today. And we're thankful, Lord God, that in the midst of the battle for truth in our society and in our culture, we want to stand courageously on what you have said, on what you have given, on what you have written, on what you have impressed upon our hearts and minds through your word. And today we're thankful to be able to study your word in freedom. And Lord, I pray that we will rightly divide your word. And so fill us with your spirit, that we may give honor and glory to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. A few years ago, Discover Magazine rated Sir Isaac Newton as the greatest scientific thinker in history. Now, for those who may not know, Newton was a Christian and a believer that God created the heaven and the earth in six 24-hour days. 
literally. Newton was mocked by his own contemporaries because they couldn't understand why he believed there was a God who created the world in those six days. Well, one day, uh, Sir Isaac made an elaborate model of the solar system, which took up the entire front room of his house. And impressed by its details, his colleagues asked him where he got the model. He says, I didn't get it, Newton said. Oh, you made it? No, I didn't buy it. I didn't make it. No one put it here. It just appeared. And suddenly, they got his point. I hope you did too. I'm not sure you did. It's early still, right? Sunday morning. You know that you all get really harped on. Everybody thinks that everybody at 9 o'clock service is really half asleep. Let's prove them wrong today. They got his point, you see. That in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Spoke it into existence. Because he has the power to do so. And it's too bad that many people don't get it today. You know, when Newton was investigating the movement of the planets, he quite clearly saw the hand of God at work. He wrote, This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as the Lord over all. And on account of His dominion, He is wont to be called Lord God, or as it is in the Greek, Pantocrator, or universal ruler. This supreme God is a being eternal, infinite, absolutely perfect. Now, those words are great to hear, coming from an acknowledged scientist. One that even Discover Magazine says the greatest scientific thinker in all of history. But what are modern scientists saying in regards to the splendor of God's creation? Well, once again, let's quote Carl Sagan from his Cosmos series and books. He says, and I want you to notice certain little details of what he says. He says, the secrets of evolution... The secrets of evolution are death and time. The deaths of enormous numbers of life forms that were imperfectly adapted, notice imperfectly adapted to the environment, and time for a long succession of small mutations that were by accident adaptive, time for the slow accumulation of patterns of favorable mutations. What a totally different kind of language when you take God out of the picture. Everything's an accident. Everything's a, an imp, imperfect uh, uh, adaptation. Things are secret. You know, the death and time. When God created the heavens and the earth in those six days that we're studying. Created them to bring forth life. And from the very beginning, God has been a God of life. And without God, there could be no time. Have you ever wondered why it is that even evolutionists and creationists, believers, non-believers, agnostics, atheists, and Christians, and all other religions, everybody follows a seven-day work week? Where did it come from if it didn't come from God's plan? 
But do men acknowledge it? Well, we'll find out. So the battle for truth continues as we see the contrasting beliefs before us. Did the universe evolve over a period of billions of years as a hit and miss proposition following a big bang that would eventually bring about natural death and destruction? Or did God out of nothing and by the word of His power speak all things into existence and in six 24-hour days form the heavens and the earth by the work of His fingers? A lot of people are going to say, This is a battle between science and ignorance. The reality is, it is a battle between the truth of God's Word and the ignorance of science and philosophy today. And the ignorance only comes because of their desire not to believe. Their choice not to believe God's Word. Remember what we have seen and learned so far. God had hung the heavens and the earth in space. But the first picture that we get of the earth is that of an earth that is without form and void. The earth uh, was incomplete, it was unfinished, and it was empty. The earth, the whole earth, was covered with water, with one massive ocean of surging, raging water, and with... Yeah, you know, you, you can imagine whether there were waves or not being tossed to and fro uh, all across the surface of the earth. We can maybe imagine that for dramatic effect. But nonetheless, there were really more oceans than anything else. And in addition, the earth was blanketed in pitch black darkness because of a dense fog and heavy, thick clouds that hung over the surging, raging waters. But God was ready to create It says that the Spirit hovered above, it moved above the waters. The Spirit was ready to create uh, and, and was ready to prepare the earth to sustain life. God therefore launched the seven great days of creation. And so far we studied four of the great days of creation. This is what we have seen. God has created light, verses 3 through 5. God has created the firmament, which is the breathable atmosphere, verses 6 through 8. God created the waters and the dry land. And He also created plant life and vegetation in verses 9 through 13. And then He created and distributed light upon earth to regulate day and night and the seasons and years in verses 14 through 19. So now we've come to the fifth day of creation. And that day is now launched. And what a significant day it was for the first animal life is now created. The first animal life created in the seas and created in the air. And God said that the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and the word whales we'll talk about in just a moment uh, because it really represents more than just uh, Uh, whales themselves. God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Now you'll notice one difference or distinction between this passage and the ones previous to this one. Remember we've been talking about the Ten Commandments of of, of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, and God said ten times, And every time that God said, it it, it happened, you know. 
And it was so is, is really what we normally see. And it was so. So, ten times commandments were given by God in creation. And each commandment was fulfilled. And so what's missing here in this particular text is, is the phrase of completion. And it was so. Instead, we see that the Lord has said that the waters were to bring forth the moving creature that has life. And yet, He used the word barach again in verse 21. Remember that we saw that in verse 1. In the beginning, God barach created the heaven and the earth. And in that one word is the understanding that when God spoke, He created everything out of nothing. By the word of His power, God created the heaven and the earth. So out of nothing, ex nihilo in, in, in the Latin, is the same understanding and phrase. So we see that the Lord has said that the waters would bring forth the, the moving creature, and He says, out of nothing. So therefore it isn't the waters that created it, it's God. So what the Lord now created was totally different from all other creation. Totally different. Added now to the waters. Added to the breathable atmosphere of the sky. The creation of animal life was distinctive and it was unique. And this is seen in three facts. The first fact is that the waters did not produce the living creatures of the sea and air. The waters did not produce the living creatures of the sea and air. God Himself created the animals of the sea and of the air. There was nothing within the waters, air, or land that could create or bring forth sea and air creatures. Nothing. No energy, no force, no power, no substance, no element, no gas, no chemical, no matter or any particle. God Himself, His Word, the power of His command, created both sea and air creatures. That's what that one word says. That He created the great whales and every living thing or living creature that moves. So let's remember and let's begin to apply this understanding that the same God who created those things then is the God of that power today. Let's remember that God's Word is power. It is unlimited power. It was God's Word that created, that had the power to create the creatures of the water and the air. Scripture declares that God's Word is unlimited power and can do anything. It can set the hardest heart of fire or else pound it like a hammer until it breaks and surrenders to Christ. Anybody experienced that lately? That's what God did to us. Think about Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Didn't God break the rock of our hardest heart so that we might have it softened and know who Jesus Christ is and believe Him to be our Savior and Lord who is risen from the dead? The Word of God and the Word of His power. God's message, the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, can save anyone who believes. Anyone. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of the Word of God. God's Word can pierce like a sword and divide asunder both spirit and soul, thoughts and motives, as we see in Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is quick, which means it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's Word is that powerful. 
God's Word can cleanse a person's way. Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. The Word of God can cleanse a person's way. Aren't you thankful for these episodes of God's power in our lives? And really not just an episode, it is something that should be continual in our life. Our understanding that God is always powerful. God's Word is always powerful. God's Word is always living. God's Word is always powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, it cuts both ways. It cuts to conviction and it cuts to healing. That's, that's what a, a, a surgeon's scalpel does. When we have to go under the knife, as they say, we certainly hope that surgeon knows what he's doing. And we certainly hope that he takes that scalpel and, and, and does what he has to do to do what? To bring healing to our body. How much more a God who has the sword of the Spirit to cut our heart, to reveal our sin, and then to heal us of that sin. The power of God. We are different today, not because of what we've done, but because of what God, the Creator, has done to our hearts and our lives. That's just the first fact. The second fact, now getting back to creation, the second fact is that everything created up to this point was a matter of God taking something that He had already created and focusing, rearranging, and and reforming it. But not now, not in the creation of animal life. See, that's what he had done in the first few days. But now, this is different. Water and air creatures were to be different, they were to be distinctive, and they were to be unique. So much so, that a special creative act of God was needed. What was it? The Barah creation of God. For God to now create out of nothing once again. Out of nothing. Not anything in the sea. Because evolutionists will be quick to say, well, if there was a sea, it was a primordial sea, and in that primordial sea, evidently there must have been something that was there to have life generated in it, and then we got the amoeba. By the way, that is our earliest ancestor, according to the evolutionists, the amoeba, our father, a one single-celled thing. God's trying to make it real clear. No, it wasn't the water and it wasn't the air. It was me. Thirdly, the third fact is that the Hebrew term for moving creature here in the King James literally means living souls. Isn't that an interesting thought? Living souls. There was no living soul on the land the day before, which was what? Mostly plant life, right? Plant life and vegetation. Well, not mostly. It was all plant life and vegetation. Because that's what God created on the fourth day. So when God creates Adam on the, on, on the sixth day, as we shall see next time, He does so by forming him from the dust of the earth. And if, evol- if evolution were correct, we might expect to find God creating sea creatures from some pre-existing life form. Some plants or some algae, as I mentioned before. But, but what scripture says is that he spoke the full array of sea creatures into existence immediately. Out of nothing. Immediately. Sea creatures be there, boom. 
There they were. Winged fowl, winged birds, boom, there they were. So great sea creatures, including whales, by the way. The word whales there actually should be sea creatures. You could even put the word monster there if you want. Because they were huge in many cases. But the great whales, the massive stingrays, the great white sharks, the giant squids, and even dinosaurs. Ah, the introduction of dinosaurs today. Are all included in this creation. As is every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded. And if we see this literally in the Hebrew, it tells us, let the waters swarm with swarming things. And that's a little bit of a Hebrew de- uh, literary device to say, I really want to emphasize, let the waters swarm with swarming things. To repeat a word is to give evidence and emphasis of what God did. Let the waters swarm with swarming things. Now, I, I mentioned the dinosaur at this point in our study of creation because we all know that they existed, don't we? We all know that dinosaurs existed. I love you. You love me. How many of you parents are kind of remembering some of that uh, uh, Barney stuff, right? Uh, Not too many of you. Oh, come on now. Are your arms, are these the Tyrannosaurus Rexes we were talking about last week? We can't get our arms up to say, you know, that... Do we know about dinosaurs because of Barney? Or is it because uh, our uh, museums of natural history have all these big, cute skeletons of, of these creatures that they found? We know they existed. We're going to find out in the next few weeks and months how old they were, though. Now, I also mention them here because of the wording in the Scriptures, referring to great sea creatures. As I said, the word used for whales in verse 21 is the Hebrew word, well, I didn't tell you what the Hebrew word was, but here it is, tanin. It is the word tanin. If you want to write it uh, transliterally, it's it's T-A-N-N-I-N. And sometimes it's T-A-N-N-I-M to make it plural. But tanin, which comes from the word tan, an elongated monster or marine animal. Now, that's, it's important to understand that ton means elongated. How many times do we see pictures of dinosaurs and the, the impressions of those who draw them up to be rather elongated? Well, it's in the scriptures that they are. It comes from the word tan or tan, an elongated monster or marine animal. Now, the word tanin or tanin is used 28 times. This is why it's important. It's used 28 times in the scriptures, 21 of them of which are translated dragon. Dragon. A marine or land monster. So it was a, it was a, a sea creature or monster that wasn't just uh, uh, to be in the land. It could also be uh, or in the sea, but also on the land. So when you consider one other biblical term or word, and I think you all are familiar with it, it's the word Leviathan. How many of you heard of the word Leviathan? Okay, very good. Oh, good. The arms are working today. Good. 
It's almost 10 o'clock, so, you know, we, we can get them up. Okay, yeah, Leviathan, it's, it's a biblical term. Now, Leviathan, there's the word tan again. You see at the very end of the word? You see how it's tied together to great sea creature. Now, too often, though, people today are saying, well, Leviathan really probably is just a, 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 a very uh, exaggerated or, or large uh, crocodile. But uh, that's, that's really not the case. Uh, well, you know, it could have been, but you know, we're, we're dealing with something greater than this. So when we consider the word Leviathan, it's interesting what its meaning comes out to be. Turn to Isaiah 27, if you will, for just a moment. Isaiah 27, verse 1. Now, somebody has asked me, why are you using the King James Version uh, as we go through the book of of Genesis? Uh, There are a number of reasons. I don't want to go into all of it today. But it's going to kind of keep us focused on things. So, you know, I don't want to kind of keep jumping from one place to another. One one major reason why I'm using it, though, is because a lot of modern translations have, have weakened the strength of the words in the book of Genesis. And one reason why some people don't believe the book of Genesis in chapters 1 through 11 uh, as we've talked about in our earlier studies, is because their particular modern translations do not have a full and complete understanding of the words. It's, it's, it's taken rather a, uh, a thoughtful position or a, uh, added to it uh, an idea rather than to take it literally. And we need, to, we need to take the scriptures literally here. Anyway, we'll get back to that in another, another series. In that day, it says... The Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, putting aside all of the metaphor and analogy that we find here concerning the, the, uh, uh, the work of the devil being the dragon and, and uh, uh, realizing that uh, it is also pointing to something that is, that is prophetic and something that's uh, going to become uh, uh, a reality later. It's the wording that is used for Leviathan and serpent and dragon. It all really brings us to that very thought of creatures that are not really being seen today. And it gives us also an indication of what took place after the fall of man. And what I'm going to say here is really a bold statement, but it it shouldn't be a bold statement if we believe God's word. That in uh, contrast and opposition to the evolutionary thought that no human being ever saw a dinosaur, the Bible actually teaches us that men and dinosaurs lived at the same time. And again, we'll get that, uh, to that at another, at another study soon. But the fact is that the usage of the words here, and as you look at the Leviathan in the book of Job and you look at it in other places, it, it brings us to that, that thought of these great serpents that now, after the fall have the ability to bring forth certain destruction and death. But because of the flood, they were brought to destruction and death. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself. But before the fall, in God's creation, 
and in God's perfect creation. And this is what we have to understand. Before chapter 3, before the fall, in God's perfect creation, all these animals created in the sea were certainly created in perfection with purpose. Seriously disrupting the theistic evolutionist gap theory and also disrupting evolution itself or, or, or humanistic evolution. But theistic evolution, when I mention that, remember, these are people who want to believe in God and, but, but believe that God used evolution to create. Uh, so this is disruptive to the theistic evolutionist gap theory, which allows, the theory does, for a long period of time for dinosaurs to have roamed the earth for millions and millions of years reaping destruction and death long before the Bible teaches that death was in fact a result of man's sin and not Lucifer's sin. Because everybody wants to throw Lucifer into the mix and say, well, what we read in Isaiah 14 when God cast Lucifer out of heaven and, and you know, they, they ended up here on the earth and all of a sudden when they ended here in that time of the earth being without form and void, that this is when all this destruction was going on. But wait a minute, let's look at Romans 5.12. And again, this is just for our understanding here. Romans 5.12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Which man? Adam. By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So the, the idea is that uh, if we say that there was death and destruction before there was the formation of the earth in, the, in six days, whether there was a million or a billion years before that, goes against God's word. That everything that was created, and by the way, why is that statement, and God said it was good, and God saw that it was good, and it was good, and it was good. The good is to say that it was made just like God wanted it to be. Perfect and complete. And because He is a God of life, then He is bringing about life, not death or destruction. So it could not have come before the creation of the heaven and the earth as we see in these six days. And so this is just reinforcing our understanding that uh, without form and void in verse 2 only means that everything was created and then God now had everything before Him as an artist has his palette, as a sculptor has his clay to begin to form everything as He desires to have it. And it was good. And it was perfect. And it was with life. And it was without the destruction and death that normally is applied to animals such as the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the others. So we'll get back to dinosaurs later, but suffice it to say that even the fossil record gives more evidence for a young earth and a God-designed creation in six days than it does in substantiating the theory of evolution. Now, if that hasn't shocked you yet, let me say it again. Even the fossil record gives more evidence for a young earth and a God-designed creation in six days than it does in substantiating the theory of evolution. I want you to notice, go back to our text. Notice in verse 21 of our text a phrase that we've seen before. After their kind. After his kind. Do you all see that? Verse 21. After their kind, after his kind, we see the great variety of birds and sea creatures were created at the same time, not evolving slowly over millions of years. And even though plant life was created before animal life, animal life was not created out of plant life. You see, there is, and, and, and even evolutionists and scientists have to agree, there is genetic variability in all of the kinds of creatures that have been created. 
Among the diversity of animals, many share similar structures. Yes, birds, maybe reptiles, mammals, and so forth. This argues at least as persuasively for a common designer as it does for a common life source. But all life did not come from the same primordial cell, but it did all come from the same designer. And again, all animal life is created according to its kind. God deliberately structured plenty of variation within a kind, but one kind does not become another kind. One kind does not become another. See, we're going to learn the difference between what is microevolution and macroevolution. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But for example, structure among dogs is, di- is diverse. Structure among dogs is diverse. How many of you have, have noticed the last couple of weeks that we've had the, these dog shows on TV? You know, if you, really, if you really need to take a nap, turn the dog show on. And I love dogs, by the way, and I like to watch these things. But, you know, sometimes you'll turn them on and you see the dogs going around and around, and, you know, they're being judged and you... You know, but, but it's a great thing to watch. Why? Because within dogs' kind, there are so many variations. You can have a teacup poodle, or they, you can even have a teacup Yorkie. I mean, some of you have had a teacup Yorkie. You, 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 have, you have a teacup poodle, but it's very different from the Great Dane. A Great Dane looks at the teacup poodle and says, Lunch! But they, I mean, he wouldn't eat them. I mean, because they're the same kind. But they're both dogs, right? That's the that's the issue. They're both dogs. However, they won't become mice. They won't become moose. No matter how much breeding is done, you cannot turn a dog into a mouse, and you cannot turn a, a dog into a moose. You cannot do it because they have been created after their kind. Now. Evolutionists give, often give convincing examples of microevolution, which is the variation of a kind within its kind, adapting to the environment. For example, the ratio of black to white peppered moths may increase when pollution makes it easier for dark moths to escape detection. Or finches may develop, a finch is a bird by the way, or finches may develop different beaks in response to their distinctive environment, But the moths are still moths, and the finches are still finches. They're still birds. The moths are still whatever moths are. But there has been no change outside of its kind. Microevolution does not prove macroevolution, which means to have one kind change into another kind. Now, that is, of course... The very uh, basis of evolutionary thought today, when you think of Jurassic Park, the movie that came out almost 20 years ago now. And if you're familiar with Jurassic Park, you realize that they have a geologist and a paleontologist, a scientist, who goes out and they start doing digs, and then he starts explaining about the raptor, you know, the uh, velociraptor, who is, you know, really the, uh, that's the ancestor to the bird. He says, look at how the, this, this is formed, and that is formed, and, and the, you know, it could make for wings and all. And so birds come from reptiles, is what they're saying. That's macroevolution. But there has been no proof of that. 
There's no proof in any of the digs that they've made. There's no real proof of it. I'm getting ahead of myself again. It just stirs me up when I think about that. Evolution tells us that reptiles evolved wings and became the birds that we see today. How does this happen or how did this happen? Well, you know what? The evolutionist is not embarrassed to tell us, but I would be. I'd be very embarrassed to tell you. I mean, here's, here's one theory. One theory says that these reptiles climbed up into a tree to escape from predators and over time they developed wings to get down. I guess. Now you'd figure if they stayed up in the tree long enough they wouldn't eat anything and they'd die. So how would they then evolve into birds? I mean, how long were they up in the tree? It takes billions of years for all this to happen, according to them. So how long were they in the tree? The other theory is not much better. They tell us that these reptiles were running on the ground after some insects. How do they know that, by the way? Well, they were running after insects. Well, they could have been running after Reese's Pieces. I don't know. I mean, if I had said that, some, some scientists would probably say, you know, you might be right. Okay, here's the theory. They tell us that these reptiles were running on the ground after some insects and flapping their front legs after them. And over time, they grew into wings. And, they, and to catch the insects, over time, they would then fly. Wow. If you believe that, I bet you also believe that by kissing a frog, it will turn into a handsome prince. Now, the, evolution, uh, the evolutionist does believe that, by the way, I'm sure. You just need millions of years for that to occur. But here's the reality, in all seriousness, here's the reality. According to W.E. Swinton, who was a paleontologist uh, who passed away in 1994, he was an evolutionist, he was also a Unitarian Universalist, which means, you know, he believed, you know, there was many raised to God and if he believed in God at all, because some universalists themselves, they, they go to this particular kind of church, but, you know, you could be an atheist and be welcome there, and, uh, and you all would probably agree in the same things. But all that aside, this is what Swinton said. He said, and I quote, the evolutionary origin of birds, listen to this, the evolutionary origin of birds is largely a matter of deduction. You see, there's no empirical proof, no empirical evidence. It's all a matter of deduction. There is no fossil evidence. These are his words, by the way, and I quote, There is no fossil evidence of the stages through which the remarkable change from reptile to bird was achieved. Interesting. No evidence. And yet that is what they believe. Why? Paul, the apostle, tells us why. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, Paul tells us exactly why they believe that fairy tale. Because it is a fairy tale, isn't it? Barney turning in to Big Bird? Isn't that a fairy tale? Romans 8, I'm sorry, Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold the truth 
Literally, it's hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Don't want the truth to be known. Don't want to believe the truth. Just suppress it and hold it down in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. How has He shown it unto us? Have you noticed the creation? Have you noticed the stars? Have you looked at the planets? Have you looked at the constellations that we talked about last time? Have you looked at all that God has done and realized that God spoke all of this into existence? He has shown it to them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, in reality, there are no true atheists in the world. They know because they see. They choose not to believe. Because it says in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22 says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to what? To birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They refused, in other words, They refused to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. They suppress the truth and they end up worshiping the creature instead of the creator. And if you get right down to it, they worship themselves more than they worship anything else. That is the rebellious hard heart of man apart from God. Now, doesn't the fossil record show that these creatures slowly evolved into existence? Instead of suddenly appearing? Most people are unaware that Darwin's strongest opponents, Charles Darwin's strongest opponents back in the 19th century, most people are unaware that his strongest opponents were not clergymen, but actually fossil experts. Darwin admitted the state of the fossil evidence was, and I quote, the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. And because of the fossil evidence, he goes on to say, all the most eminent paleontologists and all our greatest geologists have unanimously, often vehemently maintained that the species do not change. The fossil record, you see, is marked by two great principles. The first principle is stasis, which means most species are unchanged in all their documented history. The way they look when they first appear in the fossil record is the way they look when they last appear, when last appearing in the fossil record. The way they, when they first appear and when they last appear in the fossil record. They've not changed. Scientists have to admit that. Secondly, the other principle is sudden appearance, which means in any local area, a species does not arise gradually, but appears all at once and fully formed. Interesting. 
Philip Johnson, considered to be the father of the intelligent design movement, who, by the way, became a Christian after having been uh, an evolutionist, he writes this, he says, If evolution means the gradual change of one kind of organism into another kind, the outstanding characteristic of the fossil record is the absence of evidence for evolution. The absence of evidence. The Bighorn Basin in Wyoming, it was in the first movie, Jurassic Park. The Bighorn Basin in Wyoming contains a continuous record of fossil deposits for what geologists say is five million years. Because this record is so complete, paleontologists assumed a positive trail of evolution could be found. Instead, the fossil record does not convincingly document a single transition from one species to another. There are no transitional forms. There are no transitional bones. There are no transitional anything. If they find a velociraptor, and later on dig in another place, they find another velociraptor. They have not found something in between. Because you have to have a transitional form to lead to another kind. There aren't any. Uh, Philip Johnson, once again, uh, quotes from evolutionist Niall Eldridge, and he says, We paleontologists, this is Eldridge speaking, we paleontologists have said that the history of life in the fossil record supports the story of gradual evolution, all the while knowing, knowing that it does not. That's an evolutionist saying it. If you took him to court, he'd be charged with perjury, I guess. Do you understand? He just said... We have said that the history of life in the fossil record supports evolution, all the while we know that it does not. And that is what is being fed in our public schools today. They're telling them not, this is the theory. They're saying, we came into existence 3.4 to 5 billion years ago. Now they've upped it to 20 billion years. In just a few short years, they got wiser or dumber however you might look at it. And they're pushing it. In this, I, I, this is all old stuff because that was seven weeks ago I talked about it. Pushing what? Telling, telling the teachers, you teach this as fact when it's not fact. And the evolutionists have to admit, there's nothing in the fossil record. So either evolution happens slowly with each tiny change building on the last over billions of years, or the changes come as quick leaps. Something like a mouse coming out of a snake's egg. Woo! The fossil record totally rejects the idea of millions of tiny changes. The, the quick leaps are a way of attributing miraculous power to chance or nature instead of God. And while admiring the faith of those who believe in such hopeful monsters... It seems far more rational to believe in a wise, creating, and designing God. So much more rational to believe in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Let's look at verses 22 and 23 now. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. 
and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth and the evening and the morning were the fifth day. You know, it's interesting to note if you look at that particular verse that, that God spoke to these creatures and says, be fruitful and multiply. And you know what? They understood Him. That is so cool. That is so neat. That God builds into all of His creation a communication between Himself and the creature. But there's another new component added here to the work that God did on the fifth day. He not only called His work good, but He blessed the creatures that He made. And since the book of Genesis is a book of firsts, then please note that this is the first time the word blessed is used in Scripture. First time that God blesses. He blessed them with the privilege of life. He blessed them with the privilege of being animated living creatures. He blessed them with the privilege of living upon the earth, an earth that was full of variety, beauty, and provision, and without corruption, by the way. It was also a blessing and privilege for them to reproduce, of being fruitful and multiplying, of populating the waters and the air, and of carrying on their particular species. Because you see, again, our God is a God of life, and His will is that life go on to be fruitful and to multiply. And He has made provision for that reproduction. And man is to honor God and His will. He is to worship God and to respect and preserve life. Why is it then that the believer in Jesus Christ is the first one to say, we believe in life. We will stand for life. We choose life. Because God is a God of life. Not a God of death. Not the God of abortion. Not the God of eugenics and euthanasia. These are all man-created things because of their distaste for the life that God gave. And really it is the distaste for the limitations that God has placed upon man. What is that limitation? That we be holy. That we be right before God. That we live godly. Man says, no, we want to do whatever we want. You see the difference? In choosing life, you've also chosen to obey God and to live for His glory and honor. I want you to consider the words in Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. So it's a wonderful thing. We just mentioned how God communicated with the animals. Now, they're being told, listen, let the animals communicate to you. Or speak to the earth, the creation of God. And it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord has wrought this or done this. That's what they will tell you. If you ask the fish, the fish is going to say, God did it. Or the birds in the air, God did this. If you ask the earth, it's going to say God did this. God created us. God placed us where we are. The only thing that man says that animals will tell you is, give me that fish, fillet of fish, give me that fish, you know. (laughs) 
That's a funny commercial. A little fish on the wall talking. He's even dead and he's talking. Verse 10, In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? In whose hand? The creation of God will tell you. It's God's hand. God is the God of life. And God is the God of hope. The day is coming when pain and death will be no more. Animal will no longer feed upon animal. Neither man nor animal will be savage and take the life of another creature. All life will live together in peace. In that day there will be no struggle, there will be no slaughtering, no assaults, no killing, no war. The earth will be recreated and made perfect. All creatures will live in a perfect state of being, just as they did before sin and evil corrupted the world, the earth. Nowadays, these, some of these things are actually necessities. The world in which we live, in the complex world that we have created ourselves, the need for law and order, the need for justice, the need for military involvement. Jesus never condemned those things. God had to use judgment upon certain nations because of their rejection of him. But the, the idea was that was not his original intention. The first six days of creation were all things that were done good and done with purpose and done perfectly. And God provided everything. Will there be a day when, when we will see what I just said? Yes. And can you imagine if people today who go around saying, we want peace, we don't want war anymore, people shouldn't be killing, people shouldn't be wearing furs, and people shouldn't be doing... I mean, they got all kinds of protests for everything. If people would give their lives to Jesus and use that energy that they're doing and trying to, trying to bring about peace by man's ways, they would come to realize that the Prince of Peace is already on his way. Turn, if you will, and we'll close with this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, Peter says, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't God good? Isn't God good and compassionate? It, it, just, it just burns. <laughs> I've got to share this real quick. I know I've got very little time, but it just burns my heart. I hear about people in the, you know, celebrities today, Elton John saying Jesus was gay. You know, that was in the papers, and, you know, big deal. Rosie O'Donnell and Janine Garofalo, you know, attacking a Christian and saying, oh, you know, all she talks about is, you know, God that condemns and all of this, but oh, they should be more like Jesus. Oh, like they know. But they know what Jesus is or who Jesus is. How sad. And yet God still has long-suffering. They're not willing that even they should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God of creation. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, seeing that they should all be dissolved. Everything is going to be taken away. Then what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation 
and conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in him, of him in peace, without spot and blameless. We need to be in the peace of God, in the peace of Christ, the shalom of God. I've often defined that shalom as completeness and wholeness, the perfectness of God given to us through Jesus Christ, because he's the Prince of Peace. But I want to add one thought to shalom. I I, I heard a Messianic rabbi say this on TV. It just blew me away, and I just thought, what simplicity and yet what meaning. He said, the word shalom can be described in these simple words. Nothing broken, nothing missing. What a beautiful thought. To wish someone shalom, nothing broken, nothing missing in your life. And that shalom has been given to us. We will hear it in the blessing in just a moment. God desires you to be complete and whole in Jesus Christ. Nothing broken. Nothing missing. You have everything you need in the Lord. There will be a day when once again we'll see the tree of life. Where once again we'll see the beauty of creation as God intended it. Until that day, we can trust that that day will come. We can trust that Jesus who said I will come again is coming again. We can trust that he will provide for us everything that we need for life and godliness in this life through Jesus Christ no matter what we face, no matter what we deal with in life. So, the fifth day of creation. Shall we pray?